Welcome to Aging Together, a podcast dedicated to exploring the challenges and opportunities of caring for our aging loved ones. This podcast is a product of Caregiver Consulting and Healthy Solutions, a private consulting practice dedicated to helping you navigate the aging process with ease. Together, we will dive into a wide range of topics, including health and wellness, financial planning, caregiving, and more. This podcast is for everyone, whether you are an older adult looking to age in place, a caregiver seeking support and guidance, a young or middle-aged adult planning for the future, or simply someone interested in learning more about the aging process. I hope you'll join me on this journey. Let's navigate aging together. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Pooja, and you're listening to Aging Together. We started June with a topic on Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month, and this week we're ending June with a topic related to Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month as well. In the first episode of this month, I reviewed a brief overview of different types of dementia, how to get a proper diagnosis, the importance of early detection and intervention, and then also how it can be addressed in inpatient settings. In today's episode, I'm continuing the conversation around cognitive health and aging with two very special guests, Rachel Wiley and Sydney Marshman. Rachel Wiley is an occupational therapist and the founder and owner of Day by Day Dementia Consulting and the Dementia Collaborative LLC. Rachel is certified in skills to care for care partners of individuals living with dementia. Rachel is also a certified master trainer of skills to care through Jefferson Elder Care and trains occupational therapists from around the world in the Skills to Care program. She is also currently a volunteer advisory council member for Dementia Society of America. Rachel is based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Sydney Marshman is the founder and occupational therapist with Happy at Home Consulting, based in Des Moines, Iowa. In her own family struggles with keeping Nana safe at home, Sydney recognized the unique role of occupational therapy in assessing how environmental factors contribute to living in place. Happy at Home provides therapy at home to older adults with her team of physical, occupational, and speech therapists. In addition to traditional rehab services, Sydney continues to increase access to home safety evaluations throughout the state. Happy at Home presently provides the evidence-based programs capable and HARP through collaborations with community partners. Sydney is presently acting as the president-elect of the Iowa Occupational Therapy Association and advocates for accessible housing through her involvement with multiple state coalitions. She received her doctorate of occupational therapy from Drake University. In her free time, Sydney enjoys spending time with her husband, son, and their three dogs. Together, we're taking a dive into home and community interventions for individuals and families navigating any type of dementia. Please join me in welcoming Rachel and Sydney to the show. Sydney and Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yes, I'm so excited to be here. All right, where should we begin? So earlier this month, I did an episode on all things dementia, where I provided a brief overview of different types of dementia, how to get a proper diagnosis, the importance of early detection and intervention, um, and then also how it can be addressed in inpatient settings. So today we're talking about detection and management in the home and community, because that's where we all address it in our own ways. And so I'm thinking maybe we can start with how we address dementia in the community and in the home. So I should add the disclaimer that I typically work with individuals living with dementia once they've already been diagnosed. But I will say that in terms of family members, I think you can advocate for your family member, either living with dementia or who you think may have cognitive impairment, to have physicians or healthcare providers do cognitive screens in the community because early testing leads to early intervention and then we can really set individuals up for success. What do you think? Yes, I would completely agree with that. I am a little bit different from Rachel in the fact that um, I actually have all three disciplines on my team. So I have OT, PT, and speech. With that, I think that we receive a lot of OT referrals to address the ADL needs. And we're also, again, screening for that cognition and then making the referral to speech. 
something that we had most recently was a client that her family was really concerned of a dementia diagnosis because of their family history. So we worked to do the cognitive screen and only to find out that her doctor had already referred her to a geriatrician and they were booked like through October when I had called. Yes. And it's June. Oh my God. So they were really, really looking for those immediate resources, immediate needs. And that's where we were able to step in diagnosis or not to find out what is the true impairment and what things can we do right now. Yeah, that's something important I feel like to know is that like sometimes you might not get a diagnosis right away if you can't get in to see a doctor, but it might already be starting to impact your everyday. So like how do we get in front of those people who can start utilizing our services and just so we can help them before they can get into the doctor's office or while they're waiting to get into the doctor's office, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess that brings me to what do you feel is the biggest misunderstanding when it comes to dementia? I think my first thought with that question is people seem to think that once you're diagnosed with dementia, you need to move. And it's, Mm. it's an immediate need to move into a memory care community and to um, leave the home because it's just this overwhelming diagnosis and that's the best place. I believe that's a myth because I think individuals with dementia can live very happy, well-rounded lives at home. But also I'm biased, right? (laughs) (laughs) Me too, Sydney. I, I support that. I always say, you know, if a family tells me that they feel like it's really important that they consider a move because they're feeling really overwhelmed or whatever it is, of course, I'll support them. But I always say if your goal is to keep your family member at home, we can do that. Yeah. 100% we can do that. And I also feel like there's a big misunderstanding. People hear dementia or they hear, you know, Alzheimer's or different types of dementia and they immediately think like life is over. That, you know, that there's not anything that they can do. Just because there's not a cure doesn't mean that there aren't lots of different strategies and interventions that we can use to maximize quality of life because people living with dementia can still lead a meaningful and good quality of life. I agree. I also feel like I hear a lot of times that like, oh, it's just natural. Like they're just getting older. So it's okay. Mm -hmm. We'll just take care of them. We're not going to do anything about it. And I'm like, you're taking away their independence. Like they can still do so much for a certain amount of time. And we can help facilitate whether it's the environment or the activity or whatever it is that they can do safely without like just stripping them of everything, you know? Yes, absolutely. Completely agree. And I guess continuing with that, I feel like oftentimes when we hear dementia or Alzheimer's, people automatically assume that they have to go into like a nursing home or a memory care unit. And so I guess, Sydney, you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but like what specific facts can you provide about like dementia in the home and community? I think there is a huge prevalence of dementia in the community and people living with dementia, people caregiving for someone with dementia, whether formally paid or unpaid. Unpaid caregivers are something that I've really tried to be very intentional about tracking in my own practice because it is a huge undertaking to be able to provide care for someone with dementia and to be that go-to person that's on call 24-7. I think of my clients that do have in-home care set up and they're paying buku bucks for in-home care providers, yet they're still the person that gets called when their person with dementia kicks the caregiver out at 2 a.m. thinking that someone has invaded their home. (laughs) So uh, the unpaid caregivers are really one of my focus points for individuals living with dementia in the community. Yeah. And I also want to reiterate what Sydney and you have already talked about, Pooja, which is this concept of there's not a strict checklist of like, this is what leads to nursing home placement. This is what leads to memory care placement. It's really very individualized. And as OTs, we know that we can help people stay in their home if that's something that's really important to them, regardless of the challenges that they're experiencing. But I think that we hear a lot like, oh, well, if someone living with dementia is now incontinent, that's kind of like a checklist item to consider placement. I would disagree with that. (laughs) I don't think that we have a specific checklist that says like, this is when this is appropriate. It's very individualized. We need to make sure that we're supporting these families because there's not really one 
right way of doing things. There are many different home environments and adaptations that we can make to support them. Yeah, definitely. I feel like I often get asked like, okay, well, when would we know that it's time to put them in a memory Mm -hmm. care unit or something? And I'm like, well, it really depends. Like, what is your capacity to care? What is your financial situation as far as like home modifications or environmental needs or safety issues go? And then kind of, you know, what is the person with dementia, what are what are their capabilities? And like, are they able to comprehend, you know, the need to move? Or do we need to work on that as well? You know, transitions are a big thing. And so I feel like there's, you're right, it's completely dependent upon the individual and the family situation. You talked a little bit about like how we can do those environmental modifications at home. What comes to mind when you think about environmental modifications and dementia specifically? This is one of my favorite topics because I feel like something that sets memory care units apart from home is the security aspect. And there's, to me, no reason that we can't mimic that similar environment at home. We can set up door alarms, we can set up secure exits and entries and make caregivers feel like they have control over the situation and control maybe isn't the ideal word, but, you know, have that feeling that they are confident in the care that they're providing and that they're set up for success. So that's probably my first thought when it comes to environmental modifications. The other piece and huge component of it is just improving independence with activities of daily living. That's probably one of the largest burdens of care for any caregiver is how do I get my loved one to shower? How do I help them to the toilet? How do I do those really kind of intimate ADLs that they've never had help with before? And no, they don't want someone in their personal space. And that's why we're getting a lot of pushback. So environmental modifications are so important for those with dementia and their loved ones. um, And it really can change the success from a home-based environment. Yeah, I would reiterate what Sydney said. You know, I think home safety is a huge component of what we're doing. So anything to reduce the risk for falls, but we're also able to put modifications in place to reduce what oftentimes we call challenging behaviors. So, you know, the wandering, eloping, we can reduce interacting with unsafe objects. So for example, cleaning supplies or knives. And then again, Sydney mentioned this, but maximizing function through modifications in the home as well. And that might look different for every client, but for some clients, it might be modifications in the bathroom. For other clients, it might be modifications in their closet or labeling drawers or cabinets. Of course, again, that's going to look different for each individual, but there are lots of things we can do to think about safety and function. Can I just tell you one of my favorite modifications that I've ever made regarding This is so goofy. So I had a gal who had recently um, started wearing briefs for incontinence management. And she was able to get to the bathroom very private, didn't um, want anyone assisting her with managing the brief because really she was able to do the transfer. She was able to get lower body dressing on and off, whatnot. But they found that she was putting her soiled briefs back in the new brief box. And daughter is like, I don't know how to fix this. We can't educate on this. So how do we fix it? And this gal, she was very detail-oriented. Her house was very neatly kept. So all of her trash cans were behind cabinet doors. So she could not see any of her trash cans. So we moved a trash can to the toilet and suddenly it fixed the problem. (laughs) And it's just like, again, it's so goofy that it took an OT to say, oh yeah, you should just put your trash can by the toilet because then when we visually see it, we dispose of it. It's a lot of times the simplest thing. It is. You know, mm-hmm. It's funny because like I'll be telling my mom some of, you know, something I've done or something that we've discovered with a client and my mom will be like, yeah, that's common sense. And I'm like, that's not common sense for a lot of people. Like I swear my mom was an OT in her past life, but <laughs> I'm like, that's just like some things you, when you're so into the thick of it, there's such mm-hmm. simple things that you just don't think about because yes. like it's like taking that step back and taking a big 
360 view of it, right? It's so hard to do that when you're like so sucked into the moment. Yeah. it's That's a great story. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when people hear the term environmental modifications, they think we're going to come in and start talking to them about like moving walls <laughs> and doing like a <laughs> massive home renovation. So I think it's important to share these types of examples, Sydney, so that they recognize that when we say environmental modification or home modification, sometimes we mean incredibly simple changes to the environment that can change behavior or function. Yes. Yeah, we're not going to be on HGTV. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> that would be like a cool spinoff series, though. <laughs> that would be. I would like, love that. <laughs> we've got to get somebody in TV entertainment to make note of this and get it going now. I love it. <laughs> Just follow OTs around who do home modifications and right? Like, and yes. show the differences that they'd make. So fun. Have you guys come across any assistive tech or equipment? There's like new options that are out there kind of every day. I feel I read about something new or hear about something new. So when we're talking about safety, I think Sydney, you mentioned like we can mimic a memory care unit at home. And I feel like a lot of that is assistive technology, right? And so what kind of equipment or tech have you guys used for seeing? Honestly, I work in a very low tech realm. <laughs> I kind of, I don't want to say that I believe less is more, but in a lot of ways, specifically with the dementia population, the more that we can do that mimics their typical routines, that mimics, you know, their their deep core memories is my preferred. But with that said, I still do subtech. I really rely heavily on our state assistive technology program here in Iowa, because through that program, we can check out different technologies to see if they would work for the client without having that added cost. And that's a huge factor for our families that are extremely budget conscious and wondering, okay, what can I do here at home that's cost effective, knowing that I'm likely going to have to pay the large memory care bill later. So definitely low tech things. I've done anything from Amazon Alexas to the motion detectors. We had a gal that was very, she was not a fan of her caregivers, we'll put it that way. So in general, the caregivers were more so just supervising and providing that on-site support from afar. So we actually did a motion detector by the bed. So it didn't ring in the bedroom, it rang to the caregiver that was in the downstairs bedroom. So that was really helpful for her. And again, just like that low technology aspect, because it allowed the caregiver to be aware of the situation, aware of what's going on without interrupting that typical routine. Yeah, again, just reiterating everything Sydney just said, I think there are lots of different avenues we can go. But I think it's really important when we're thinking about technology that we're more thinking about how can it benefit typically more the care partner, either the formal paid caregiver, the informal family caregiver, because new learning for someone, especially with moderate or severe dementia, is it would be unrealistic to give them something and say, you know, now you have a pillbox with an alarm. Now they have to make that connection between that alarm now means it's time to take medicine. That's just setting them up to not be successful. So a lot of the tools that we're using are more to support the family member caring for the person with dementia. So we can still use alarms for pillboxes, but it's more going to be to remind the caregiver to cue the person <laughs> uh, to take their medicine. Also, like Sydney said, I mean, there's lots of great, fairly inexpensive items that we can get off of places like Amazon for mats, where when you step on them, they send an alarm that's remote in a different room door alarms, same thing. You can get them with remotes so that they're not alarming right at the person and startling them. There's also different types of like GPS type things. So lots of different watches. They make some cards that can go in your wallet, shoe inserts with GPS. And then like Sydney said, also using Amazon Echo, the Alexa or Google Nest type products. Some people already have them in their home so we can make some little adaptations to help but again, we just want to make sure that anytime we're considering technology, is this something that's financially doable? Can we rent things from our state tech services? I know we have that in Pennsylvania here as well. Or are there ways that we can utilize things that are a bit less expensive or less intrusive? So there are some great products out there, but not all of them are the right fit for every family. 
Yeah. And also considering like mutual benefit to the person with dementia and also their family when we're thinking about technology, right? Like what is something that they might actually find useful in their home that would also support the safety of the family member? What I've recently been seeing a lot of is like the ring cameras, right? Like every household has a ring camera now almost. And if you can also just put one like inside and then it kind of allows a family member to be able to step out real quick and still be able to see what's going on at home if they're safe to do so or not having to have that anxiety of like, oh my God, like I need to go get groceries and I can't because I can't bring them with me and I don't want to leave them home alone and just all of that. And so I feel like thinking about that kind of stuff too, like a lot of stuff is already in your home. How can you utilize it to support the needs that are there? So we've been talking about this a lot, but why is it so important that we address not just the individual with the dementia, but also their family members and all care partners, paid and unpaid? I feel like this is a favorite question for all of us, but I'm going to let one of you start. I'm going to let Rachel start because this is like her like bread and butter. (laughs) I was going to say I could talk forever just about this question. I feel very passionately about this. Um, We know that as dementia progresses, the person living with dementia will require additional support. So there's no circumstance, unfortunately, where someone living with dementia progresses through the entirety of whatever their disease is without requiring some sort of support. So it's crucial that we're involving these care partners, not just so that we can make sure that the individual living with dementia has the appropriate volume of support, can help everything we're talking about, right? Make these little changes in the environment, provide them with appropriate cues, adapt tasks so that the individual can continue to participate as meaningfully as possible. But we also know and I think Sydney alluded to this earlier as well, we know that family members who care for someone living with dementia, they have a higher risk for their own health conditions, even compared to family caregivers who care for older adults with other health conditions. So Mm -hmm. this population is especially vulnerable and they really need additional support. We all know that our health system is not perfect. A lot of times somebody, (laughs) if they get a diagnosis, (laughs) it's usually like your family member has Alzheimer's, good luck. And there's really not structured support that's offered at the time of diagnosis. So that's really where all of us come <laughs> come into play because we recognize that this is not something that is easy to handle or manage and that these care partners really need support. So that's my mini soapbox for now. <laughs> I'll pass it <laughs> off before I could ramble forever about this. <laughs> I know. I love the mini soapbox though. (laughs) Honestly, soapboxes are one of my favorite things because it just shows how passionate you are about the topic and how much deep diving you've done to solve this problem that persists. (laughs) Thanks, Sydney. (laughs) Continues. So I love it. Yeah. I just have like maybe a little bit to add there. I think one of the things I noticed most about including the care partner in this process is just that ability to generalize solutions, right? So even if I'm only seeing someone for one time, and I'm just providing them a good overview of what's going on, it may be that something I said during that hour is something that they use one, two, three, five years later, because they were set up with those right supports initially. So that's really important for, you know, our practice, especially when we bring in like the realm of insurance, being able to provide those initial consultations and set people up with resources for the future is very important. Because again, so much of what we do is common sense. A lot of what we do is so innovative and interesting and not available to the general public. But a lot of what we do is just common sense. So if we're able to elicit that and give that confidence to that care partner, then there is a good chance that they will be able to solve their own problems down the road. That's a great point. I am going to highlight that and (laughs) say that back to all my family care partners. Like, you can do it. Um, I 
Agree. So I'm going to add a little bit to that on just like the early side. So I feel like when people originally start showing signs, I got to see this more on the hospital side where people have been functioning and then they all of a sudden they end up in the hospital and you're like, how have they been living alone this whole time? And unfortunately, a lot of them don't have family and that's why they kind of slip through the cracks, but a lot of them do. And so at that point, it's like, okay, well, can we speak with a family member? Can we do this? Can we do that? And there's so many barriers in place to prevent us from having those educational sessions and communications with family members. And it's not just the lack of desire to do it. It's Mm -hmm. also like the structural barriers in place, right? Like if the family members can't show up to the bedside, then we can't talk with them or educate them with the patient there, which means we can't bill for their services, which now is taking away from hours paid billable service time when we're working in inpatient settings, right? And so the system doesn't help support us in supporting caregivers or care partners. And so that was the whole reason why, you know, I was like, okay, I got to meet this need because we need to educate these family members. Otherwise, there's that gap and there's no carryover. And we might be telling the person living with dementia something in the hospital, knowing very well that it's not going to carry over because they don't have that retention or that problem solving skill to be like, oh, I need to write this down or I need to go tell my family member this. And so how do we kind of help navigate some of that too, right, on the front end to set them up for success later, like you were just saying? I would completely agree with that. And I think it's just very challenging because when we think of getting people connected to resources and giving them the education, I think a lot of um, the outside perspective is probably, well, we have case managers and we have social work to do that. But truly, we're tasking our case managers and our social workers with discharge planning, which is a whole different ball game in itself to plan for the next step of this acute issue. We aren't providing those long-term solutions. And I also think, you know, this reminds me of something that that you had mentioned earlier, Pooja, this idea that we have a lot of misconceptions about what dementia really is, which creates a whole realm of barriers in and of itself, right? So a lot of people will just say like, oh, you know, my family member's always been stubborn or, um, oh, they're just getting old. Like this this is just mm-hmm. part for the course. Um, So there's already a lot of barriers understanding what dementia is. And then even the term dementia in general has a lot of stigma still associated with it too. So all of these things are also creating additional barriers and being able to provide that appropriate education and support that's necessary. Right. And there's also the fact that dementia is such like, it's an umbrella term, right? Like that's not a diagnosis. Yes. And so I feel like a lot of times, especially in the hospital, if they're having acute cognitive changes, it gets labeled as dementia. And it's like, well, this is a reversible dementia. It's going to get better. It's because you have an infection. But then people hear dementia, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God. And that lack of education or awareness that dementia is not a diagnosis. There's so many different pieces that kind of play into that. Right, right. Yes. Although we say dementia is not a diagnosis and we know that it's not, but we also know that people have the ICD-10 diagnostic code of dementia unspecified all the time, right? So even though we right. healthcare providers know this is a, a syndrome and an umbrella term, families, that's still really confusing to get the quote diagnosis of dementia without really understanding, okay, yes, this is a group of symptoms, but what's the disease that's causing this? Yeah. Particularly because people have so much more access to their EMRs than they ever have, (laughs) right? So you can log into your medical records and be like, oh my gosh, what is that diagnosis? I've never even, no one's told me that in my life. And we just, I love and I appreciate the open access, but I think it really just shows the gaps in our care in the direct patient care side of things, right? Absolutely. And especially when you consider the populations with low health literacy, and now they have all this access to jargon that like they either automatically become fearful of or completely ignore it because they don't understand it. Right. Both are dangerous. Agreed. So since all three of us are trying to meet these gaps in our system, what are some reasons that 
an aging adult or their family member might want to come see us specifically as OTs for dementia in the home or in the community? Well, I think each of us has a slightly different niche, but we all overlap, right? I will say the majority of my clients come to me when the individual living with dementia is experiencing a challenging behavior. So when we see resistance, aggression, wandering, rummaging, inactivity, hallucinations, those types of things, those are usually what triggers a visit to me. But we can do a lot more than that. (laughs) So safety, function, Activity participation, again, supporting that care partner, all pieces of what we do. But again, I think each of us might have like a slightly different niche or focus while still covering all of the needs. I would just add on to um, Rachel's kind of key takeaways. I The only thing that I really would say um, I try to prioritize with all of my clients is that resource navigation. Mm-hmm. So because I do bill insurance in my practice and I understand that therapy is not going to be a lifelong service, it's going to definitely be more episodic that I want to get people to the right point of where do we find these long-term services? So do we have a dementia support group that you can tap into? Are you, do you currently have long-term care insurance that would pay for in-home care, things like that at hospice? I make a lot of referrals to hospice actually, which is a whole different conversation because hospice is a different dirty word, but you know, just setting up success for these individuals as they continue in their journey with dementia. Yeah. You mentioned that we play an important role in resource navigation and referrals. And that is a big part of a lot of what we do is, you know, these families are coming to us oftentimes at a point of crisis. And they're kind of just like, what do we do? We don't even know what's out there. And it's not as simple as a simple Google search, right? Because they don't know what to search for. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where we come in. Mm -hmm. Even if we're doing a simple Google search, it's because we know what to search for. We know what providers or what services or resources would be helpful to them. And then we can find something in their area for them, right? And so I feel like that is so crucial. That's a crucial aspect of why we need to include family members and support them that way. Are there any specific resources or referrals that you've made to various individuals or their families for dementia? Well, I kind of talked about the referral to speech therapy for that gal that couldn't get into a geriatric memory care or memory center. It's not a memory care unit. It's a specific provider that specializes in memory support. Anyway, so I refer to speech therapy that way. And one of the really kind of critical points in this process is helping caregivers to recognize what they need to go through their doctor for and what they don't, right? Because getting your loved one out the door to an appointment is an adventure, (laughs) For a lot of people. So Mm -hmm. if I can send a fax and say, please send order for XYZ, I will happily do that because that reduces our transportation costs. It reduces the time needed to take off of work. It reduces stress and anxiety of getting to an appointment and anything that we can bring into the home to add those additional supports. I think it's just so important for individuals. Yeah, I think there are, again, of course, client specific, but I think the resources that I refer to the most are local social workers or counselors, especially those that specialize in dementia, adult day programs, non-medical home care, aging life care professionals, which they used to be called geriatric care managers. They're in out-of-pocket costs, so not always a perfect fit for everyone. Local nonprofits. So like in Philly, we have a program called Arts, which is a program specifically designed to engage individuals living with dementia and their care partners in arts programs. So each city or each area might have their own sort of nonprofit or specific programming. I think Sydney mentioned the idea of support groups, also elder law attorneys, and then some of the larger national organizations like Dementia Society of America, Alzheimer's Association, Association for Frontotemporal Dementia, those types of organizations which have disease-specific resources and general resources and hotlines. Those are some great, great examples. We'll have to make sure to make a list. That's like a great like take-home pamphlet. Like, here you go. Look into all of these websites for resources. <laughs> well, and it's so challenging too, because I mean, just in this group, we represent such a wide geographic area mm-hmm. that no, we're not going to be able to say, oh, you should go see this specific person, mm-hmm. but at least we give them a Google term 
right? Of an elder law attorney. We make that referral all the time because it's so important for individuals living with dementia to have their key players in peace, right? POAs, decision makers, all those things. Yeah, absolutely. It's like right now we can figure out Des Moines, Philly, and Chicago, but like anything outside of that, we're like, I don't know. It's hard, right? You know? Mm -hmm. Kind of going along with those specific types of resources and referrals, we also have like dementia certified occupational therapists and also like dementia certified programming that we can offer. And I know that you both are trained and skilled in a couple of these differently. And so I wanted to highlight those because again, those are more terms that families can search for if they're looking for somebody in their area, right? Like we want to find an occupational therapist with this training or with this program. And so do both of you want to maybe speak to a little bit about your programming? Um, Let me touch briefly about Capable first, because I feel like Rachel has a much longer list than I have. So I've I want to give her time now. Um, so I know we've talked about capable and truly capable is actually not set up to serve individuals with cognitive impairments because of its coaching model. It really wants individuals to be cognitively able to receive that information and process through it alongside the healthcare professionals that it includes, which is the occupational therapist and registered nurse. With that said, capable can still be a huge benefit to care partners. Because like we've already talked about, care partners are at a huge risk for adverse health events. And it provides this really great time to have that preventative hat on to say, okay, what if? Or how can we prevent this from happening? Or how can I make your life easier? Tell me the things that you're having challenges with. So in that way, Capable has been really helpful in actually providing the care partner support which in turn benefits the individual living with dementia. And I am a massive Dr. Laura Gitlin fangirl. <laughs> so Dr. Gitlin is a internationally recognized researcher in the world of dementia. She's not an OT, but she's a huge OT advocate. And she had her hand in developing quite a few programs. I believe she was involved in the capable development. She also developed a program called Skills to Care, TAP, or the Tailored Activity Program, and COPE, which is Care of Older Persons in Their Environment. These are all evidence-based programs. I'm super biased and very partial to skills to care because I get to train other OTs in the program. So take what I say with a grain of salt, but I love skills to care for the same reason Sydney loves capable. Again, there's some overlap because of the similarity in researchers, but it's very client specific and care partner, caregiver focused. So it really allows the care partner to tell us as the OTs, what are your priorities? What are your concerns? And then we systematically address these challenges by figuring out, you know, why is this happening? Why are these challenges occurring? Why are these behaviors happening? And then working with that care partner to develop an action plan. And then in addition to those, so again, I'm very partial to (laughs) Dr. Gitlin's work, but outside of that, there is a website called Best Practice Caregiving. That website is full of a ton of different dementia programs, not all OT specific, but lots of different programs out there that have been vetted. So they meet strict criteria to be included in that database. So if you're stuck and can't find an OT like us near you, then that might be another place to to browse. I do want to point out really quick, um, Rachel, I love all the things that you just said. I wholeheartedly appreciate all of them because it just shows your commitment to specializing in this population, but you are one OT in one place. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important as people do Google, you know, occupational therapist near me, or whatever that term may be, that they recognize that not everyone is up to Rachel's caliber. And it might take some digging to find your right provider, right? I think when I've done dementia support groups, a lot of people have said, oh, I've had OT. I had home health OT, which is so, so different from what you and I do. So I just really want to encourage people, don't knock it till you try it again. (laughs) Again, is the underlined piece there. (laughs) Thank you for that. Hopefully you do find your Rachel. (laughs) 
or your Sydney or your Pooja. I think that that's such a phenomenal point and one that I'm actually asked by other OTs a lot. Like, Rachel, how do you go out in the community? A lot of times if I start by saying I'm an OT or occupational therapist, some people have this preconceived idea about what that is because they had an experience with OT in the past and they'll say something like, oh no, my arm strength is fine. I don't need an occupational therapist. And I have to say, you know, we're so much more than that. (laughs) So thank you for that point, Sydney. I think it's such a great one that, you know, the, the three of us are really specialized providers and have a niche and are very passionate about the specific populations with whom we work. And I think it's important that for any population, you're making sure you find a clinician, an OT with the right skill set for you. It's kind of like, you know, I like to compare it to better known professions, right? Where if you're looking for a specific lawyer, you're not going to just search lawyer near me or attorney near me, right? Like you're going to, if it's for real estate, you're going to search for a real estate attorney. If it's for elder law, you're going to search for an elder law attorney. If it's for, uh, you know, personal injury, like anything, like it's, you have to look for a specific type of attorney with a specific specialty to to meet your needs. And this is kind of similar where, you know, the general attorney might have some ideas for you, but they might not be able to help you with the nitty gritty of the situation. And that's kind of similar to us, right? Every OT is educated in cognition and dementia and home modifications, but not every OT is specialized in the nitty gritty of those situations. And so how do you find that specialized OT in your area who can help you with the specific needs that you have. Yes. Oh, I love that example. Also, I part of me, I love that this is a podcast, but part of me just wishes that there was some sort of like snaps for head nods, right? Because like <laughs> on the video aspect, we're all like, oh my gosh, I'm over yes. here, like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so I just want to like reiterate that to everyone listening, like, yes, absolutely, yes. I love every word of that. <laughs> Good point, Sydney. That that's it. The whole time, anything you two say, I'm over here like smiling and nodding away. But no one can can hear that on the podcast. So we <laughs> hear our laughs. Yeah, love that. Um, okay, well, since we're talking a little bit about prevention, right? And we want to talk about like preventing some of like the challenges down the road or any crisis situations down the road. Here's a question I have that I know you both will share your sentiments on with me, and many listeners might have done this themselves. So I often take consults where a family member is just starting to show signs of cognitive decline or has a brand new diagnosis of unspecified dementia. And once I review like our standard initial education, I often get the very common response of, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Or, okay, we're not there yet, so I'll reach back out when we need to address that. And in my head, I'm like, that's not the point. (laughs) The point is to proactively prepare and plan so that when that crisis hits, you're not scrambling to make decisions that are ill-informed or under-informed, right? We want you to be prepared to make well-informed decisions. So how do you guys handle this yourselves? Or do you find similar difficulty with explaining the importance of planning ahead? Yeah, I think first I want to recognize that, yes, I agree with you. And we hear this a lot. And I also feel like all of us also understand how overwhelming that time period and process can be. So we recognize that in that moment, you know, you have a new diagnosis, this is all new, that it can feel so overwhelming to think about like, I need to put things in place for the future. Like I haven't even wrapped my head around what this means yet. So we recognize that that can be extremely overwhelming. But I think that we all have the skills to be able to meet you where you're at. So if you're feeling really overwhelmed, we can give you things that are simple, that aren't going to feel like they're going to take a ton of time or energy to put in place, just little things for you to think about to create potentially an easier future for you. So, you know, I often think about the concept of 
I'm going to go nitty gritty, (laughs) procedural memory, right? And we know that procedural memory stays with us longer than other types of memory, typically with dementia. So as an OT, we can help you and your family member living with dementia set up routines and actually help enhance procedural memory so that the person living with dementia can maintain their function for longer. So it might feel overwhelming at first, but we're actually ideally going to make your life a little easier (laughs) in the future if you're able to work through some of that. I also, it makes me think of in the Skills to Care program, we have something that we call caregiver readiness. And it's based on something called the trans theoretical model, but really it's looking at caregivers and thinking about, you know, how ready or willing are they to kind of accept the the situation and change their behavior. And again, no judgment. Everyone's going to be at a different point on that readiness scale. (laughs) But as OTs, we can kind of meet you, again, meet you wherever you're at on that scale. So if you're really ready, (laughs) like Sydney mentioned earlier, somebody who's able to generalize those skills, that's somebody who's they're ready to go. They want to eat up the information. They are interested in everything that we're educating them about, and they're going to take that information and apply it to other situations. Other care partners are going to, going to be so overwhelmed that we're going to start with just very simple, basic education. But regardless of the situation, we can meet you where you're at, and we'll do our best not to add to your plate, but actually we're going to hopefully make life easier. Sorry, that was quite a ramble. Hopefully some of that was helpful. <laughs> it was a great ramble. Though. No, that was great. It was lovely. That no, was I, yeah, and I love that they have the readiness to change scale in there because that's so important, not only for the people that are living with dementia, but also for their care partners. So I really appreciate that they screen that. I think what I had initially thought about is the people that I've worked with that are so overwhelmed with the other roles in their life as caregivers. So I work with a lot of adult children that are still working, whether they work from home or they go into the office and they suddenly have to manage their full-time paid job with this unpaid caregiver role. that They're also on call 24 seven to, and hopefully they're able to have a job that flexes that and that they can manage both. But I have a feeling that they will always feel like their plate is full. So what better time than now before you're in a crisis mode Mm -hmm. to start looking at different resources and start that process. Because again, you don't want to add to your plate when you are in crisis mode, because it's going to be already overwhelming, boiling over all the things. So it's to me better to start earlier than later. The other thing is just meeting the right people. Kind of like we talked about, find your Rachel, (laughs) find your Pooja, you know, all the things, (laughs) find your right people. And, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm going to come in and give you like this long homework to-do list. It just means that, you know, that I'm a friendly face. I'm in your corner. I'm someone that you can call anytime and say, Sydney, I'm really struggling with this and I don't know what to do. Even though, you know, your mom or your loved one isn't on my caseload, I can still say, you know what, it's a great time for our services to start back in. Or why don't we try this other option instead? So having that resource network readily available, I think is a really, really um, important piece of dementia caregiving. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. And I think Poojan and you both touched on this, which is this idea of let's try to prevent a crisis before it happens. I think that if we had to boil it all down to one concept, (laughs) that's really the biggest, I think, takeaway or reason that you would access some of these services before you feel like it's 100% necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you mentioned the readiness for change. I added something similar, but it's more so I walk them through the stages of grief. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's something that we often need to consider is that this could be a very grieving process. Absolutely. And so, you know, kind of where are they on that process? And are they ready to even accept the diagnosis and move forward with it? Or are they still kind of grieving the process and trying to even understand what's going on before they can kind of move into that, right? Not just for the family member, but for the individual living with dementia as well. I had a family member tell me that the parent was extremely frustrated with the kids coming in to make decisions Mm -hmm. and all of this stuff. And 
thinking that they're still fine and they can make all those decisions on their own. And it's kind of that, is it a denial phase or is it more so they're angry because they know they can't change it, right? Mm. And how do we work to meet them where they're at, both you and us, right? And so I think that's a great point to address is that everybody's going to be at different stages. And the beauty of it is we can meet you where you're at and help prepare you for any crisis modes. Mm -hmm. I love that you include a grief scale. That is so genius because honestly, the anticipatory grief is such a huge component to what we do in recognizing that loss. And I just truly feel like dementia is so different from our other chronic health conditions with this anticipatory grief because of the timeline, Mm -hmm. right? So when we had someone pass from cancer in my family, I mean, that timeline was six months, six months that you're having this like anticipatory grief. Whereas some people in my dementia support group have cared for their loved one with dementia for 10 years. That is a long, long time to go through the grief process and really just sit with those feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you don't know if you have an undiagnosed or unspecified dementia, you don't really have a timeline, even idea. Mm -hmm of like what that might look like, right? Like there's, of course, with Alzheimer's, we have the stages with frontotemporal dementia. There's a longevity prognosis on that. Um, With the other different types of like specific dementias, there is some more research behind that as far as like expected prognosis, right? But when it's an unspecified dementia, you're kind of like, I don't know, we'll see how it goes, right? And it's there's no end in sight. And I think a lot of times, yeah, that's a completely different level of family grieving that you're working with. All right. For the sake of time, because I know we can keep talking about this forever and ever and ever. <laughs> what is one takeaway you'd like the audience to consider as it relates to home and community options for care for individuals with dementia and their families? I think my go-to takeaway is just to start building your care team before you need them. Know who the people that um, you can call on at any time, the people in your corner, the people that you can express your greatest frustrations to and know that they will just validate your feelings and say, I get it. And that's okay. No, you didn't show up as the ideal caregiver and that's okay because none of us are perfect. And Here's some steps to remediate that for next time. Here are some resources because I see that you're getting burnt out. Here is how we're going to budget for the care that you need. There are all of these different professionals, occupational therapists included, that can really provide this well-rounded life for individuals with dementia living in the community, and it's just finding them. So it's never too early, in my opinion, to start building your care team. Completely agree, Sydney. (laughs) I think that's a beautiful kind of take home point. And my point would be very similar. You know, I think that family care partners often think that they maybe have to do this alone or don't know that there are resources available to them. And I think Sydney made the point earlier that sometimes it's not the easiest to find. And Pooja, you said this earlier too, you know, sometimes you don't know how to Google or what to Google. Reach out to Pooja, reach out to Sydney or myself. If we can't help you, we will try to find somebody who can help you. So at least you have a starting point with this crew right here. But I think that to Sydney's point, finding individuals to support you along the way. It doesn't mean that you have to work with someone, you know, multiple times a week forever. (laughs) It might be that you have just someone who you know, you can touch base with them once a month, once every other month, once every few months, just to kind of keep tabs, keep that relationship and know that you have someone to go to for those recommendations and support. So you're not alone. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Pooja and Sydney. This is really so fun. (laughs) So fun. To all my listeners, thank you for tuning into this week's episode on home and community interventions for individuals living with dementia and their families. Sharing expert perspectives on various age-related topics and services can help the community learn how to plan for a healthier future. At Caregiver Consulting and Healthy Solutions, we are dedicated to helping you navigate aging together. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.